The Formula One industry has reached an era where gamers become the best racers. This is the business of winning, only in the podcast Brain Food with Lydia. Gallagher, we yeah. saw each other eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, is your life different now compared to before? And talking about work and life and everything. Eight years ago, a lot of things has happened. Yeah, a lot of things have happened in my life, uh, personally and professionally. So in eight years, m- both my children have left home. Wow. And they've left the UK, they've left Europe, and they now live and work in Australia. Um, I've bought a home in Australia, so I spend the winter in Australia now, and the summer, uh, the Formula One season I spend uh, in Europe. So that's those have been big changes, so, so this is your life. I mean, since I have my kids, kids on my own, you yeah. have to chase them when they grow up. You yeah. go after them. You go chasing them, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you make the mistake of trying to plan everything for when they're going to return. And they never do, mm. because once they're gone, they are gone. But thank goodness for social media, because we keep in touch literally every day, mm. every day, send photographs, videos, funny stories, uh, speak to each other. So that's great. And then professionally in the last eight years has been a really interesting time, because when we met, I had really just finished my full-time executive career working in Formula One. So so work after employment was was a kind of new thing for me. I was on my own for the first time and uh, still kind of finding my feet. Um, the last eight years have flown by. My, I now have a business with uh, employees. Um, I'm working with a lot of talent in Formula One. to had some incredible experiences, particularly in recent years. Um, so having thought that I was branching out on my own, I've ended up actually using my network to build my business. And um, it's a really interesting, it's interesting to reflect on the fact that life is ever evolving. Mm, True. Nothing stays the Mm. same. And, you know, as you get older, one of the strengths is that you have a life network. You have a network you've built up during your life. And people come to you and ask you for advice. You know, how can I do this? Or can you help me? So, but that, that has a reason, of course. Yeah, of course it does. <laughs> of course, yeah, of course it does. And, you know, people are... So I'm, I'm enjoying my life, and I have to, I have to admit that, um, you know, I've just turned 60 this year, so that was a big moment. And um, kind of looking back and reflecting on, on my career, and um, I have to be honest and say that more than ever, I love the industry that I chose to work in. So mm. I actually, with the passage of time, I've, I've come to enjoy it even more. And, um, and I'm looking forward to what the next kind of 10 years holds, which will probably be the last 10 years that I, that I work on a very active basis. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Mm. But can you explain to all those who don't understand the formula one uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a beat, so yeah. to speak, uh, what is it that makes you stick to the business year after year? Was it What is so sexy about it? So, I, um, there's, you know, if we had a psychologist sitting here, they could probably tell me. So <laughs> there are actually lots of factors. So one of the... So let's talk about maybe one of the darker reasons for me, which is that I grew up in Northern Ireland and I grew up in 
for those of you, you know, for, for listeners, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, but is, of course, on the island of Ireland. And we had a conflict, a really serious conflict for 30 years. Yeah. Many thousands of people uh, died in that conflict. I witnessed uh, some terrible things as a child, and I'm not going to draw a parallel with what's happening in Ukraine, but in a, in a micro way... I, I worked in a climate of violence and it was quite frightening at times. And as a result, as a young person, I couldn't wait to leave. So I wanted to do something that involved getting out of the country <laughs> and traveling. Then on top of that, I liked Formula One as a sport. So suddenly I'm thinking I want to travel and actually I quite like Formula One. And I remember saying to my school uh, careers advisor, um, when he asked me, he said, what do you want to do in your career? And I was 18. And I said, I, I want to work in Formula One. And he said, well, you know, that will never happen. So why don't you become a teacher or something? And, um, and I, I didn't listen, you know, I wanted to, to follow my, my passion. And I got there uh, straight from university. I was very lucky to start working in Formula One. And, and I think for the first 10 years, my parents were thinking, Mark's going to get a proper job one day, and I never did. Uh, you know, <laughs> here, you <are. laughs> here I am, forty years later. And the thing is, I didn't get a proper job because it is a proper job. Um, you know, uh, international sport, sport, professional sport is a business, and there are thousands of sports and many hundreds of thousands of people who work professionally in sport, not just as a sports person, but in a, in a teams and administration and management. And I have loved working in that environment because. As I said, I love the travel. I don't complain about it. I enjoy traveling. Uh, I've been very privileged to see the world, um, meet lots of interesting people, um, come to countries like Sweden, uh, which, you know, perhaps when I was a child, I might never have imagined, uh, you know, speaking in front of an audience in Stockholm or Gothenburg or Malmo. And so it's, it's opened a lot of uh, doors and a lot of opportunities. It led to me meeting my wife in Australia um, in 1991. Uh, so the reality is that I suppose... At the moment, here we are all these years later, what do I still, what, what is the kick I get out of it? The kick I get out of it is meeting and working with people who are at the top of their profession. And the aspect of Formula One is a sport which appeals to me is that like all sport, it involves a team of people, um, you know, working together to achieve a sporting ambition. And even in individual sports like tennis and golf, you still have a team of people around you, you know, coaches and staff and mentors and physiotherapists. But on top of that, in Formula One, we also have a big piece of technology, which is a Formula One car. So if you like technology, which I do, and if you like sporting endeavor, which you do, you put them together and Formula One is both. It's technology, it's sport, it's travel, it's... A world championship and therefore you're looking you're working with people who want to be the best in the world at what they do and that's amazing and, and yes and I, I see your passion when you when you talk about it but which what moment do you actually like the most in all this i mean is it a pit stop moment is it when you prepare the the driver or is it when you're in the fabric and people <laughs> actually build the things well, that's an interesting cocktail. That's like asking me to unbake a cake and say which ingredient is the most important. All the ingredients add up to, to the beautiful cake. And my experience of, of working in Formula One is that 
I appreciate the teamwork. I appreciate the technology, um, the, the the training, the personal training, the hard work that goes into it. I have I have not met a single Formula One driver, a successful driver who does not have a very strong work ethic. In fact, um, you know, before we recorded this podcast, you were you were you were talking to another speaker about discipline. You know, discipline. So the D the D word is a really important one. So one of the things I notice in successful teams and successful people is the amount of discipline that goes into their work. You know, they really really work hard at it, and and I get a big. A kick out of working with people like that because if even a small percentage rubs off on me, it makes me mm. makes me do better. Mm. So I, I I like all of that. Then I will t- I will really happily admit, Lydia, that I have had a few moments in my career which have been ultra special, where you you're part of a team that wins a Grand Prix for the first time, mm. a group of people you work with every day. You, know, you have lunch with every day, you have breakfast with, you fly around the world with. Suddenly you win. And in that moment, you're the best in the world that day. You've beaten all the best in the business. Everyone's look, you're, you're basically, you are world champions that day. And it is the most extraordinary feeling. You realize, you know, if you're lucky enough to live to an old age, you will remember this moment. You'll remember that day. And outside of Formula One, I ran, I founded my own team and I ran a team in, which competing in other forms of motorsport and, um, and we won a world championship in 2009, not, not in Formula One, in another category. And that was my team. I created it with, a, with a, an investor. And when we won that championship on that day, my wife and kids were with me. And it was one of the most emotional days that I've ever experienced in my life. I had put so much work into getting the team to becoming a winning team. Probably uh, the reason, the work. Oh, just, I mean, amazing amounts of effort. Hugely emotional. And, I, you know, I don't mind as a guy saying, you know, I shed a tear because I had put so much effort into it. And those moments stay with you and it makes you realize that this is what life should be all about. It should be about trying to achieve achieve something and it, you don't have to be in sport or business or trying to be the best in the world but life should be about making the most of your lifetime experience and your talents and your contribution and what you can do uh, to help yourself and help others so when you make that when you make that a- achievement possible it's so rewarding and uh, so I, I you know that that, and that's what keeps you going. So 99% of it is just sheer hard work. But that 1% where you have that great moment and you think, wow, this, is, this makes it worthwhile. Mm. Would you say that, this is maybe a somewhat provocative question, but would you say that the world needs Formula One? <laughs> no, the world, no. <laughs> the world doesn't need Formula One. The world doesn't need pole vaulting or long jumping or sprinting or basketball or football the world doesn't need it but people need sport um, because sport's good for entertainment it's good for health it's good for mindset it's good for mental health i think one of the things i'm most proud of about formula one 
is that despite the global pandemic, we managed to put on a world championship in 2020 and 2021. A lot of sports stopped completely, especially international sports. But we just, we created um, a COVID bubble within which all the teams and drivers stayed. We did 80,000 COVID tests amongst the personnel over the 2020 wow. season. And interestingly, out of 80,000 tests, we had 78 positives. So it was a pretty effective program. So we had a world championship. So people were watching Formula One when the world was on lockdown. And so many fans contacted me and said, it's the best thing, you know, we have a sport to watch and enjoy in the middle of this terrible, this terrible period of time. And you guys are managing to travel somehow. We don't know how you do it. Um, so you think about what sporting, what sport brings. It, it brings a lot of benefits to people in society, entertainment, enjoyment, motivation, etc. Then there is this other dimension of Formula One, which is that we do benefit wider society. And there are things that have happened which people don't even even know about and perhaps the one thing which i'll pick i mean there are lots of things but the one thing that i will pick is that as you know i have spoken in in uh, events about the dramatic change in safety in formula one and one of the results of the safety changes in formula one is that formula one sat down with the european union and said to the european union we can show you what we've done in Formula One. And if you could do some of this in the cars that people drive, it would make their cars safer. And the European Union got on board with that. This is in the mid-1990s. So the European New Car Approval Program, Euro NCAP, which is where they crash test cars. So the whole crash testing program now was developed as a result of Formula One. And this is why all the other European car manufacturers began to catch up with Volvo on safeties. Volvo had been doing it for years, but Formula One really brought a, a change in the way all the car manufacturers address it. So the reality is that today, if you buy a car in Europe, that car will be inherently safe compared to what it would have been 20 years ago. Volvo was still the leader, by the way. Um, but, you know, when I look at that and I think it's saving people's lives, it's developing technology solutions which translate into real world uh, so that's been very powerful and if we can now do a similar thing in decarbonization so if we can show how to de develop cars and technology which don't rely on fossil fuels i think that will be the second big takeaway from me from from the sport and what it does for society. So it uh, it means that it will not be involve any batteries uh, or electric cars. Uh, yeah. So we're not. In future. So we already have big batteries in a Formula One car. It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid uh, internal combustion engine and a battery. Um, what's going to happen in 2026 is the size of the battery is going to increase, but we will continue to have a motor, and that motor however, will not run on fossil fuel. It will run on a synthetic fuel. And ultimately, I think that, um, you know, where, where we are going is towards um, developing some slightly more interesting long-term solutions because battery technology is really impressive and that is going to suit a lot of applications. But for the world of aviation, of marine transport, of heavy-duty goods transport, if you think about... Uh, for example, a company like Volvo or Scania Trucks. 
you know, those trucks need a lot of energy and they can't all come from batteries because they'd have, the batteries would have to weigh 20 tons, you know. So we need slightly more, um, not so much complex, but richer solutions. We need a richer suite of solutions. And I personally think, I hope in my lifetime, I think that Formula One will end up probably being hydrogen powered. Mm. I think hydrogen is... Uh, is one big area for for the future. But the one thing is for sure that in this decade, we're living through a time of profound change. And I think it, it is as big as from when we went from horse-drawn transport to the motor car. I think the motor car, as we know it, is now going through the next big change. Mm. But you also uh, managed another challenge when we talk about COVID. You went online with your drivers. Yeah. Yeah, what have, happened, and and what what uh, what change did that make? Yeah, that was really interesting. So one of the things, that, uh, Lydia, is that as I became older, I realized the fan base of Formula One was becoming older. <laughs> yes, that's the truth. It was older people were watching it, and um, we just weren't getting young people watching Formula One. In fact, young people in many countries don't even particularly want to get a driving license. Cars are not that interesting. Uh, Can so, you believe that? Yeah, and I, and you know the first time the first time I realized this, or the first time I was told this was in 2005. Can you believe? In Japan, I was very fortunate to spend a day with the head of research and development for Honda Motor Company, and he took me to their headquarters, uh, R and D headquarters, and we drove a hydrogen-powered car. This is 17 years ago. And we're driving this hydrogen-powered car, and he said, you know, we think this is going to be the future. It's, at the moment, very expensive, but we think the price will come down, and you know, hydrogen has a big future. So we started talking about trends, and he said to me, you know, in Japan, we cannot get young people to buy cars because the cities are overcrowded. They're very happy to use public transport, and if they have $5,000 or $3,000 that they've saved up, they would rather spend it on a computer. They'd rather have a an amazing computer for computer gaming yeah. uh, or a sound system, entertainment, TV, whatever. So big changes started to take place. And so what's happened uh, during COVID to Formula One is that we were not able to have real racing. So we pivoted online to have virtual racing, computer computer gaming, uh, eSports. Uh, eSports is the, the, the proper name for it. So we started having virtual Formula One races using computer gaming, you know, technologies. All of the top Formula One drivers now do this anyway. It's their hobby. Uh, they grow up with it. Max Verstappen at Red Bull or Charles Leclerc at Ferrari, um, you know, uh, George Russell at um, Mercedes-Benz. So all the top drivers are computer gamers. So we simply got them to race each other online. And what happened was astonishing because all of a sudden this big audience of young fans who don't really like to watch Formula One suddenly said, wow, Formula One drivers are computer gamers. So they started kind of engaging. And what we now have is a professional eSports side to Formula One. Every single Formula One team now has a virtual team, uh, uh, eSports team. And it's a fast-growing side of the sport, and it's engaging with uh, younger audiences. And when I say young audiences, by the way, what we're talking about are millennials, which are really people under the age of 40, um, and then Gen Z, um, so, you know, uh, teenagers, and even down to sort of 
Gen Alpha, which is like 10-year-olds. So the computer gaming generation is enjoying ga- engaging with Formula One. COVID has helped us on our shift to change gear in that respect. And it, it, it has shown people my age, you know, older people in the industry, that we need to listen to our young talent and our young audience of what's going to work for you. There's no point in us trying to guess. Just ask people, what do you need us to do to engage with you to provide you with um, you know, entertainment and, and, and enjoyment and uh, engagement? And again, the connected world is providing us with that opportunity. And there's one final thing I will mention on this, which is quite extraordinary, is that we are, we are now in an era of, of what we call gamer to racer where kids who are really good on computer games can go directly to Formula One as a driver. And I'm really excited about this because what we used to have was that the only way to get to Formula One is if you were from a wealthy family or you could find big sponsors. There was a lot of money involved. Now what we have is we now have a route to Formula One through computer gaming where anyone with a PlayStation, an Xbox, a PC you could become competitive in the online racing. And they always level up, all the and time. And they always level up. <laughs> and you know, the incredible thing, Lydia, is that when we put these computer gamers in a real Formula One simulator, they are as good as the <laughs> Formula One drivers. I mean, they, they know how to do it. So I'm quite hopeful that that's going to fix some of our challenges around more nationalities competing, uh, women competing, getting women into Formula One as drivers. Um, so, so again, I feel like we're in a decade of change and the connected world is helping us with that. Mm. Now, back in the days, um, the, uh, the Formula One circus, if you may call it that, was full of testosterone. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> there were guys, guys, all, all, all everyone. I think that if, we, if, if you would have me too in those days, yeah. uh, you would have a lot of cases going on there. Yeah, yeah. But, but nowadays, um, how uh, has this changed? Uh, especially when it comes to, to draw the strategies around the, 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 the races. Yeah, so... The first re- I would love to tell you that it changed because we are just a wonderful group of people who decided we need to have more women mm. working in the workplace. The real reason was to do with serious business because there is a sh- there is a worldwide shortage of engineers. There just are not enough engineers and not enough young people are considering engineering as a profession. It's kind of boring and you have to do like difficult subjects like mathematics and physics and chemistry and whatever. So if you talk to any of the multinational engineering companies, which in the case of the UK are companies like Jaguar Land Rover or British Aerospace or Rolls-Royce, they will tell you we have a shortage and it's going to get worse. So about 20 years ago, Formula One really started working with universities to encourage more undergraduate engineers to consider Formula One and particularly targeting men and women. And that began, that began to have a really big impact. So you can study Formula One engineering now at a lot of universities in Europe. Um, the second thing we did was we created a program called Formula One in Schools, which is aimed at children aged 7 to 17. And the objective of Formula One in Schools is to encourage girls and boys to consider studying appropriate subjects and to make engineering interesting. To say to people, look, engineering is not boring. 
it can you everything that you touch in life has been engineered someone has engineered this microphone your laptop your watch your iphone whatever so engineering can be uh, can be exciting and it's a great career and it can be quite a diverse career so by by getting school children involved and saying to boys and girls you need to come and, and look at this we have in- increased the pipeline of talent those boys and girls then go from school to university they then come into formula 1 and to your point, we now have, you know, we have much better gender diversity today in Formula One than we have ever had, and it's growing. The Mercedes-Benz Formula One team have a program called Accelerate 25. So their goal is that by 20, 2025, 25% of their employees will be women. So that's, and across technical jobs, not just administrative jobs. And then to your point, when we look at the race strategists, so these are the people who run the race strategy for Formula One drivers and teams during a race, 40% of them are now women. Uh, just so they, uh, people understand, they are the girls who yeah. are saying to the driver or to the team, now we're going to change the tyres. Yeah, well, they decide everything. They decide pit stop strategy. They decide uh, race strategy. So, for example, you know, how is our strategy how can the strategy for our team make us jump in front of the competition? So, you know, how do we how do we run our race? And this is highly complex, involves lots of variables. It involves the weather, it involves the car performance, it involves the driver performance, the track. It also involves what the comp- competition are doing because if the competition are doing a particular thing, we have to adapt our strategy. So what's really interesting uh, Lydia, is that the women who have come into Formula One are coming in in very senior jobs. They're not coming in in so many junior jobs. They're coming in in really quite senior jobs. So because of the work that we have done, the women that are coming in are highly academically qualified. So these are uh, usually master's graduates. have done a master's uh, of some engineering uh, discipline. They're coming in at a very high level. They're ending up in jobs with great responsibility. And this is really changing the dynamic. Uh, we, have a, we have still some way to go in terms of gender diversity because all the Formula One drivers are guys. All the Formula One team bosses today are guys. We had two female Formula One team bosses in the last 10 years. On fo- uh, one of them, she sold the team. The other one left her job after a while. So we, but we need, to, we need to move towards that because just as... You know, the proportion of chief executives in Europe that are women is tiny compared to guys. We see the same in sport. The number of coaches, the number of team bosses, you know, the gender diversity is, is not there. But that's going to change because as we keep filling the pipeline of talent in the right way, we see the change happening. And I'm really noticing it at the moment. And then the other aspect is cultural diversity because, you know, we just talked about gender when I started working in Formula One, most of the people were from, I would say, four or five countries. So it was packed full of people from the UK, France, Italy, Germany, and interestingly, Japan. So Japan had a big input in Formula One because Honda as a, Honda as a Japanese car company has always had traditionally uh, a big interest in the sport. Now we have people from all over the world. And I think Red Bull have something like 28 nationalities working on their team. I think Mercedes is like 35 nationalities. 
And so you are just as likely today to meet an engineer who's from, you know, Sweden or Denmark or Finland or Russia or China or, you know, or Brazil. And again, that's good because it means that we're attracting the best people in the world, not just the best people in the UK or the best people in Italy, but we're looking for world-class talent to build a world-class team. Mm. And uh, talking about the team, uh, the, the leaders are, of course, very important, but there are leaders on several levels. Yeah. You have this strategy women or yeah. men, especially yeah. the women. Uh, yeah. There are more right now. And then you have the the team around the pit stop and um, so many leaders. And what do they learn from each other? Yeah. Uh, so I have, a, I have a, a kind of philosophy around this, which is that leadership is not a job title. It's actually a behavior. Anyone can be a leader. I mean, as you know, I tell, when I've been here in Sweden, I've, I've told a couple of times this story about um, us winning, a, my team winning a, the French Grand Prix and how that day a member of our team, a guy called Dave, um, came up with this kind of weird suggestion, this weird idea, which led to us winning that race. I think in some ways he showed leadership. You know, he was kind of helping us to to achieve our ambition. So I think, and, and I think we have all in our lives experienced working with someone who's just an inspirational person, just makes you think, wow, that person really makes coming to work worthwhile. So they don't need to be the chief executive. They can be any role in the business where they just put that extra effort, they inspire people, they have a positive attitude. They not only do their job, but they actually help you with your job and It, it gives you a real sense that that person could lead anything. And so I think, once again, uh, com leadership for me is a, is a behavior. Uh, I think we can all display it. And I think the job for what I would call traditional leaders, the job for the boss, bosses of departments or the bosses of companies, increasingly, is to create an environment within which each person can excel. And each person can demonstrate the best qualities and the right behaviors. And you are really empowering a team to, to create a, a great outcome for you. Uh, the, the formal term that we use is, is servant leadership. So this is where you as a leader are serving the organization. You're serving the team. You're actually saying to the team, how can I create an environment for you to to be brilliant at what you do. Mm. And that's a much better style of leadership than the old-fashioned style, which was, you know, the boss telling everyone what to do, command and control. That's gone out of fashion, and it's gone out of fashion for a good reason. It, it, it puts a lid on creativity. It puts a lid on innovation. And we need to create an open environment for people to be creative and innovative. Mm. But you also have to be a, a leader with the big ears and to trust a guy like Dave, David, David yeah. <laughs> from Scotland, who <laughs> outperformed all technology, all weather yeah. satellites, yeah. by taking the scooter and watching the clouds coming in, calling the team and saying, you have to keep on racing yeah. not changing tires yeah exactly. uh, i'm shortening the story a, a yeah. little bit but but um at the end of the day a person can outperform technology even formula one yes 100 <laughs> so i think this becomes a really interesting question because you know lydia if i'm asked if i think about the top kind of five questions i get one of them is 
undoubtedly the question, what is more important? Is it the Formula One car or the Formula One driver? So is it the technology or the person? And my answer is always the same. You need both. You need the best technology. You need the best talent. Ultimately, people make the difference. And as you know from my presentation, I talk about the fact that all 10 Formula One teams have got good budgets, nice facilities, great technology, smart people. On paper, all 10 Formula One teams have got a very similar opportunity. The reality is we only have two or three top teams. And uh, when you look at what differentiates the top teams, it's not technology, it's people. It's a group of people who work together in a certain way to problem solve, to focus on an ambitious target, to deliver that. And actually, I'll tell you something really remarkable is that yesterday, uh, before, you know, before we recorded this podcast, um, you and I were on stage and uh, I, I just delivered my keynote. And I came off stage and I happened at lunchtime to go on the BBC website and there's an exclusive interview with... Mattia Bonotto, who is the chief executive of the Ferrari Formula One team. And this exclusive interview, they said to him, how has Ferrari managed to make itself a competitive team this year? You've, you've come back after several years of disappointment. You're a top team this year. You're winning races. What's been the magic formula? And there in black and white in the BBC interview, Mattia Bonotto says... Um, we've gotten rid of the negative behaviors, blame culture, and we've adopted a positive team culture, um, uh, an environment where we learn from each other. And if we make a mistake, we learn from the mistake. And we drive this positive team environment. And he said it is, he said it is people who make winning teams. And I'm thinking he, he must have read my book or, <laughs> or listened to my speech because one of the reasons Ferrari has not been competitive for a long time is team culture. And so it's all about people and behaviors. People make the difference. And when, when a team of people is failing, it's so easy to point the finger at the technology and say, oh, the technology is not working. That's an excuse. It's, um, it's down to the people. Thank you, Mark, for taking your time and good luck. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>